Good morning. We've got some announcements to start off with, um, and then we'll do trivia and we'll begin the day. Hey guys, um, I'm here to make an announcement for Habitat. We're, we have two announcements. First is we're doing another build the 11th of October, and it's going to be framing, so it means we're actually going to use hammers. Um, so you should all come and sign up. There'll be an email being sent out through our listserv soon, so make sure that you're signed up for that if you want the um, email for it, because we only have 10 spots. But that's the 11th, and the next week we have a farm test. But it's an afternoon, and it's a Saturday, and you should do it. So I'm Austin Ramey. I'm going to do the other announcement for Habitat this morning. Sent an email out last Friday regarding a fundraiser we're going to be doing. Um, so what we're going to be selling are these foldable clipboards that fit in your white coat. So they're pretty nice. A couple of the interns at the hospital use them. They fold out like this. If the paper's not creased, it doesn't crease it. This paper was already creased. So um, On the back, there's going to be um, labels with a bunch of, I guess, general medical information, normal lab values, equations, things like that, that are going to be really helpful for you guys. And FCP4, um, FCP3 probably, and also when you get to the clinics, it's much more convenient than having to page through one of these other small reference books. So um, basically, we've got a pretty good deal from the retailer. We've got a big discount. So it's going to be $15 for the clipboard itself. We're going to include a $5 donation into that. So the total price at the end will be $20. So we're going to have a table uh, out in the atrium here at lunchtime. Um, Anna and Sarah will be out there. So stop by, take a look at it, um, print the order form off if you're interested from the email we sent. If you need one, just drop us an email. If you have any other questions, feel free to ask your classmate or me. So thanks. Hey, everybody. Um, I'm here representing medics today. And what we're going to do is we're going to put an ad in Vital Signs as a statement of support for our LGBT uh, students and also um, of allies who are supporting our medics. And um, National Coming Out Day is uh, fast approaching. And what we want to do is we want to uh, put a list of names of people in Vital Signs. So what I have is the text for the ad. And if you're a supporter, um, please just write your name down. If you've already sent your name in, you don't have to do it again. All right. Okay, um, don't forget that those of you who have focus history, that begins this afternoon. Um, trivia for today, the great state of North Dakota. Actually, that sounded pretty close to moo, which goes along with the trivia. Milk is the official state beverage of North Dakota. Now you know. Let me add one thing. So my dad grew up in uh, North Dakota. I'll tell you who I am in a second, although most of the medical students should know. Um, and he grew up in Towner, North Dakota, which is like a town of 2,000 that was the cattle capital of North Dakota. Actually, the United States, I think. So anyway, I'll add that into the North Dakota trivia. So the medical students, um, you guys should know who I am by now, Dr. Iverson. Um, for the PAs, um, 
I'm in general medicine at the university. My wife's actually a PA, um, graduated from here and is in the uh, emergency room. Uh, Katie Iverson, if you run across her. Um, this lecture I originally did for uh, a review for family practitioners, um, and so that's, that's the catchy title, Thinner. Um, and I have a couple slides in here that may be more geared a little bit to that, to maybe practicing physicians, but I think it'll be relevant for you all. Um, and it should be pretty quick, actually. So the one thing I did want to mention up front is if there's questions about terminology, um, someone raise your hand or holler out, but I think most of it by now, you guys should know most of it, and I'll try to clarify if there's any big questions. Um, first, I'm going to start off with a study uh, that was done by um, Sing Wen Lin et al. in Taiwan. And the reason I bring it up, originally, obviously, I was comparing family physicians to specialists, but obviously we're trying to, I mean, I think when you get out of here, the, the idea is that you have a pretty generalist um, sort of knowledge about most of the medical problems. And probably as close as you are um, related, or we train you mostly to be like a family physician, I think, when you get out of here. Obviously, that changes a little bit as some of you take more specific um, electives and stuff during fourth year, um, gearing towards more if you think you're going to do a specialty. But I think the stuff I'm going to give you today is going to train you mostly to be like a family physician, um, pretty well-rounded about this issue. And the point of the whole study is that you stack up pretty well against the specialist, maybe better. Um, so anyway, this was done um, right after Taiwan went to a national health insurance system and basically what, they, what that allowed was that people who had a medical problem could go directly to specialists or go to the family practitioner. Um, it was a small study, it only had 254 patients. Um, and what you can see here is that on basic chemistry, um, basic lab tests, the family physicians basically compared just as well as the specialists. Um, none of those were significantly different in the common diagnostic labs, which again, I'm going to get into all that in a little bit. Um, more specific tests, the um, CEA and uh, hepatitis B antigen, actually the specialist ordered a few more of those and that was statistically significant. What you'll hear later is that those really aren't that helpful generally for working up unintentional weight loss. Um, but they did order more of those. Otherwise, again, they were about the same between the family physicians and the specialists. In common radiologic tests, the family physicians actually ordered a little more upper GIs. Um, everyone know what these things are? KUB is a, just a flat x-ray of the abdomen. Um, upper GI is where they basically drink some barium, so an upper gastrointestinal um, investigation. They drink barium and then they follow it through radio, uh, fluoroscopically actually and watch it go through the whole upper bowel and they can do the same thing with the lower bowel. CAT scan is CT, ultrasound, I think you guys know what that is. Panendoscopy is basically, you know, like a colonoscopy, except you start at the top and, I mean, you can do the whole thing, both ends, and then you can also do colonoscopy um, where they actually, or, I'm sorry, EGD or upper, um, they just put the tube down the throat and then colonoscopy obviously goes up the other way. And then electrocardiograms, I think you guys are all familiar with that. Um, again, pretty equal compared to the two groups, except for the upper GI where family physicians ordered a few more of those. And what you'll find out is that probably makes some sense um, because common uh, problems that are related to unintentional weight loss, either cancers or the other, are related to gastrointestinal problems a great deal of the time. Finally, what they did was they compared the two groups, or they divided the patients into three groups. One where they could clearly find a biomedical problem, one where they could 
either had, where they had a psychiatric problem, it was actually the cause of their unintentional weight loss. And then this, what you see here, is one, the group where they could find no diagnosis at the end. The, the other two groups, the ones where they had the um, psychiatric or biomedical disorders, they basically there was no significant difference between the specialists and the family physicians as far as amount of money. And what you see here is laboratory, these are U U.S. dollars actually, laboratory spending, imaging spending, and then other extra stuff, and then the totals. And there is a pretty big um, uh, range here, obviously, but the trend is clearly um, family physicians spent a lot less than the specialists, and the p-value was significant. So the point is that family physicians tend to, and again, this is a group where no diagnosis could be elucidated, and I think what they found was that, uh, and what I would concur is that, you know, in a, in a, as far as cost efficiency and um, uh, primary evaluation, fine physicians are more familiar with sort of undifferentiated disease and have more expertise and experience with this type of workup. So they see people more on the front line, whereas specialists tend to see people later when they've already been sort of triaged one time. Um, in this case, it kind of compared them a little more dif uh, directly because the patients themselves had triaged. I think it's this problem, so I went right to the specialist. Um, family physicians also have more experience in dealing with psychosocial issues and that probably gives them more confidence and skills with those um, problems and that's also a high percentage of people who have unintentional weight loss. Um, so the point is I think again today when I get done you'll have a pretty good rounded, pretty, pretty well rounded, pretty good idea of how to work up unintentional weight loss and I think that will serve you well. So how much is too much? Um, Clinically important weight loss can be defined as 4.5 kilograms or 10 pounds or 5% of weight over a period of 6 to 12 months. Now, most of us focus on absolute numbers. Um, I think it's probably a better idea to think about percentage. For instance, the, the thing I wrote down was if a 235-pound man loses 10 pounds, so again, going by the absolute number, that's only 4.2% of his weight, whereas if a 95-pound lady loses 7 pounds, which again is less than 10 pounds, that's 7.4% of her weight. So, um, and obviously we would probably agree that the, the lady um, is a lot more concerning than the guy. So, um, I think thinking about percentage is probably a better idea. You also need to clearly establish that the weight loss has occurred. Um, patient's recall may be wrong and the perception of it may be altered by body image, rate of change, original body size. Um, and in fact, people who present to the doctor with the complaint of unintentional weight loss, um, there was a study done by Martin et al. which showed that up to 50% of those patients, the claim wasn't even substantiated. So I think people misconceive it or get it in their head. I've done many times when I've looked at the chart a lot of times it's not necessarily so much the patient but family members with an elderly or older patient, they're worried about their weight loss. And when you actually look back in the chart a year ago, they're actually pretty close a lot of the time when people come in. That's anecdotal on my part, but I think it sort of supports that. So you have to make sure that you've actually clearly documented, which seems obvious, but it's not as obvious when you actually get in the clinical setting. Um, you got to think about this using the same scale, the same, make sure they're wearing you know, no clothes or the same amount of clothes and all that comes into play and make sure you can get it out of the record as well. A lot of times people say they haven't had weight loss but you need to actually clearly document it. Some common causes and I'll get into the details of these, that's going to be a bulk of the first part of the lecture. Um, this is a summary of five studies done by WISE which showed, um, looked at a lot of studies of what the causes were for unintentional weight loss. 
And I kind of average these out. On average, about 15 to 20% are due to cancer, about 40% due to other organic causes, 25% um, are due to psychiatric, and 20% about average uh, are still due to we can't figure out the cause. So even when you've done all the stuff that I'm going to tell you, 20% of the time you still don't know the cause and it's something you have to follow over time. Among the cancers, uh, the GI tract cancers are the most common. Um, that held up in all these studies except for the one by Martin et al. But he looked at a population of VA patients who were a smoking population and they had a higher percentage of lung cancer. And again, I'll get into that, but if they're smokers, that's something to think about. And then among the non-malignant disorders but organically based, again, GI, GI problems tend to be the most common cause of unintentional weight loss. Again, getting back to probably why it's reasonable for the family physicians to have ordered more upper GIs. Um, and again, I'll talk about the details of what you guys probably should do. Um, so I'm going to break it down into the causes into two different groups. One is with uh, weight loss with increased appetite, which there are very few causes, and then most of the causes obviously are decreased appetite comes into play for one reason or another. Um, <clears throat> uncontrolled diabetes uh, tends to be the most common cause of weight loss with increased appetite. Most are nuanced at type 1 diabetics. Um, a lot of times that's part of the diagnostic criteria, or not criteria, but the presenting symptoms that they have. Um, a lot of time it's a lot of urination, and we think of that, and we think of sort of being um, really thirsty, and a lot of times they have weight loss as well. This is probably due to insulin deficiency, obviously, with hyperglycemia and then the attendant glycosuria. And the glycosuria also causes osmotic diuresis, which leads to further weight loss. Um, weight loss in treated type 1s may indicate poor control. Obviously, that makes sense when it's the same problem. Um, and uh, young people, teenagers, fraught with problems treating diabetes, which you'll soon find out. Um, it's very difficult for many reasons, but they've actually found that young women oftentimes, in particular, um, tend to decrease their insulin levels as a way to lose weight. Um, so that should be considered in any young, you need to consider that or that they're cutting back on their insulin levels in any young diabetic who's poorly controlled and losing weight. So something to think about as well. Hyperthyroidism due to increased energy expenditure, sometimes with some additional component of malabsorption due to increased gastrointestinal motility will also, lose, will also lead to that. Um, obviously there's other symptoms of hyperthyroidism, but um, this could be the presenting symptom. Um, malabsorption, most of the patients have diarrhea, others may just have large volume or frequent bowel movements. So we often think of malabsorption with, well, the patient's not having diarrhea, but maybe they've increased their stool output. Um, so something to think about. Sometimes it's hard for pa really hard for patients to quantify that sort of thing, however. Malabsorption due to inflammatory bowel disease in particular, um, however, patients tend to have a decreased appetite. But otherwise, just malabsorption for any other reason um, tends to have an increased appetite. The, extra, the excess adrenergic rate in pheochromocytoma obviously causes an increased metabolic rate and can lead to unintentional weight loss. And then people who exercise um, intensely must increase their intake, obviously, to compensate to maintain muscle mass and body weight. And sometimes the appetite doesn't increase sufficiently to um, match that. And again, it seems weird. I mean, someone who's just exercising and doesn't think, you know, an athlete, what, uh, someone who's really exercising intensely, who doesn't think they're intentionally trying to lose weight, um, but is losing weight something you have to think about and something they might have to think about. Maybe they've really increased their exercise and they haven't increased their um, intake to cover that. Questions about that? Okay. 
So the rest of the causes tend to have decreased appetite. Um, this is the big, kind of the big breakdown, and then I'll break it down further, but malignancy, endocrinopathies, chronic illnesses, and gastrointestinal diseases. Um, patients and clinicians obviously fear malignancy the most, and it's obviously the most serious and something that needs to be dealt with right up front. Um, as I already mentioned, however, uh, this only accounts for 15 to 20 percent of overall cases. Uh, the cancer anorexia, cachexia syndrome is common and sometimes is maybe the only manifestation of the cancer in the beginning. So people present with unintentional weight loss, obviously that's what we worry about, that they have cancer, uh, but that may be their only presenting symptom. So it is something you have to think about in great detail. Um, increased en energy expenditure and perhaps anorexia are probably mediated by cytokines, tumor necrosis factor, and um, alpha, and interleukin-6 as well. So all those things come into play for the, that syndrome and for just losing weight as a result of the cancer. Other factors that could contribute depending on, again, most of these are GI cancers. Um, so dysphagia, abdominal pain, abdominal distension, early satiety due to splenic or hepatic enlargement. Um, and abdominal mass or distension, uh, malabsorption may also resu result from tumor invasion into the GI tract. So again, all those sort of things that would make you not want to eat or lose your appetite. Uh, endocrinopathies. So adrenal insufficiency, most patients with glucocorticoid deficiency have nausea, uh, anorexia and weight loss, a lot of times vomiting as well. Um, so that makes obvious sense why they're having that weight loss as a result of that, but you may have to figure it out that it, that is the cause. Hypercalcemia, this can also cause nausea, anorexia, and weight loss. Usually more, it's more related to cancer um, as well, only because the levels of hypercalcemia tend to be a lot higher in cancer patients than in hyperparathyroid, but either one of them can cause it. Um, hyperthyroidism, so I just told you that hyperthyroidism has increased appetite a lot of times, but in the elderly a lot of times they can have decreased appetite as a result. And then um, because the energy expenditure is not matched by eating, that can actually be a more um, aggressive or impressive sort of weight loss because of the fact that they have hyperthyroidism burning up a lot of extra calories and not absorbing a lot, and then they're also not eating enough to keep up. So in the elderly they can actually have decreased appetite. And then diabetes, again, I already mentioned that that's the most common cause of increased appetite, but these tend to be type 2s um, or much later in the course of the disease where you already have clearly made the diagnosis of diabetes. Um, and that's mostly at this point because of uh, the poor appetite and weight loss or because of gastroparesis, um, diarrhea, malabsorption from neuropathy, and then renal insufficiency and, and adrenal um, and autonomic insufficiency. So... It can cause either, but you tend to actually know that they have diabetes by the time they get to the decreased appetite causing that problem. Questions about that? If you guys had questions, you wouldn't raise your hand or say anything anyway, would you? Chronic illness. Any chronic illness can cause weight loss, um, mostly due to increased metabolic demand and decreased appetite and energy intake. Um, Chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD as we call it, um, may increase the, obviously you have an increased demand with the work of debreathing and using accessory muscles, so you may burn up more calories than usual. Dyspnea, aerophagia may produce anorexia and early satiety and bloating and dyspepsia, all which contribute to decreased intake um, and poor intake and poor appetite a lot of times. Dietary restrictions also in cardiac disease and congestive heart failure often lead to poor intake. Mostly that's a salt restriction, but I mean a lot of people are used to a lot of salt. When you try to cut them back on that, um, it can be a big problem for eating and a lot of people just sort of cut back on their eating as a result. 
Oftentimes, too, that weight loss can be masked in congestive heart failure because of the fact that sort of muscle mass um, is, uh, and fat loss um, with the unintentional weight loss is masked by increased fluid um, buildup or they may have increased fluid retention. So sometimes you have to be really careful. It's a great way to follow congestive heart failure with monitoring weights because of that fact, but you have to sort of it's, I don't know how to tell you specifically how to figure that out because it can be difficult, but certainly you want to be following weights on people who have congestive heart failure and any changes you need to really look into carefully because of whether it's unintentional weight loss as a result um, that they've decreased their intake or some other problem versus, again, just fluid retention. Um, muscle wasting and uh, weight loss are common in HIV. Um, AIDS wasting syndrome can occur, which is probably a combination of hypogonadism, anorexia, infection, and a presumed hypermetabolic state associated with the disease. Again, we don't see that a lot in Iowa. Um, we also don't see it as much anymore um, in today's pa patient who has HIV because of the antiretrovirals and how well they're controlled. So if they're taking them, a lot of times we don't see the AIDS wasting syndrome as much. Uremia can, uh, in renal disease causes anorexia, nausea, and vomiting, and protein loss in um, urine also can cause a negative caloric balance. In addition, people who have bad renal disease and are on dialysis, um, a lot of the swings in the metabolic balance um, has been associated with losses in lean body mass over time. So they may lose, even if they're well controlled uh, with dialysis, they may be losing weight because of that and may have to increase their intake. Many neurologic diseases cause problems, strokes, quadriplegia, Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, dementia, all can lead to intestinal dysmotility, constipation, and dysphagia. And then a lot of times also the medications for these um, disorders that we give them also lead to anorexia, xerostomia, xerostomia and early satiety. So the diseases themselves cause a lot of problems and then so can the medications that we use to treat them. Gastrointestinal diseases, this is just kind of a list of the common ones. Again, um, it's the most common non-malignant uh, cause of patients with unintentional weight loss and accounts for 20 to 30 percent. Um, there's multiple mechanisms for these problems, including uh, for the, you know, the anorexia and decreased food intake and weight loss. Some of these are dysphagia. It's the same sort of things. Dysphagia, early satiety. Uh, you may have vomiting, abdominal pain, chronic inflammation, malabsorption, and with the, some of the inflammatory bowel diseases, you may have um, spontaneous and surgical fistulas as well as bypasses. So they make, them, they make tracks that actually cause, you know, between the bowel and between bowel and other organs that can cause a lot of problems with just absorption. Again, um, most of these, this is where you sort of get more into the inflammatory bowel disease causing it actually decreased appetite versus some of the malabsorption, just pure malabsorption, which may have increased appetite. Questions? A couple of miscellaneous causes. Um, infection, really any chronic infection can cause weight loss due to increased energy expenditure in, in some of the disorders. Obviously, fever can cause an increase in the metabolic rate and obviously, uh, a lot of people, if you feel terrible and you have an infection, you really a lot of times don't want to eat. Um, you're trying to recover from that and have a lot of anorexia associated with multiple types of infections. Um, most acute infections you're going to be able, to, you're going to know about because they're going to have other symptoms. But I guess one of the things you think about more is maybe chronic infections or um, acute on chronic as well. It may have an acute infection but have an underlying chronic infection or one of the other problems as well. Um, but things to consider that would be more chronically that may not present as obviously would be tuberculosis, fungal infections, 
spontaneous bacterial endocarditis or um, parasites, another common one. And again, when I talk about sort of working it up a little bit, um, history would be really important for parasites, travel, that sort of thing. And then mesenteric ischemia is kind of a rare, or intestinal angina is the other thing we call it. Um, it's kind of a more rare cause. It's not very, uh, a lot of times the way people present tend to be um, pain after they eat um, because the blood flow is being pulled away from the mesenteric to the stomach and then it causes them pain right after they eat. We tend to see that in older folks or people who have really severe um, cardiac or vascular disease. So a lot of times we'll use that as a, you know, based on the past medical history that we know they have really bad vascular problems or have had a lot of heart problems, then we think about that as an etiology. Again, depression and psychiatric disorders, about 25% of the unintentional weight loss is due to these. Um, I'll just talk about these specifics a little bit. Bipolar disorder, especially during manic episodes, um, hyperactivity and preoccupation with whatever it is interfere with normal intake and eating patterns a lot of times, so they will lose weight. Um, Munchausen syndrome, patients may voluntary, volunt voluntarily decrease their intake um, as a method of attention seeking, which is the disorder. Delusional or paranoid disorders, it's more rare, but patients can actually develop delusions about food or about eating that will lead to decreased intake and weight loss. Um, neuroleptic withdrawal syndrome, kind of a more, also kind of a more rare thing. Um, I imagine psychiatrists see it a lot more, but basically on patients who've been on high doses of sort of antipsychotics for one reason or another, um, and then are either rapidly tapered by the physician or more likely they stop taking them, um, causes this and the anorexia weight loss is either from behavioral issues then related to that same thing they or have preoccupations or problems that are interfering with their nutritional status or there is some central neuroendocrine alterations obviously that occur if you rapidly taper it or wrap or just stop it cold turkey that can affect the, the um, weight in general. And then anxiety itself is associated with several functional gastrointestinal disorders, so people who don't have their anxiety well controlled may have problems as a result of that. Um, substance abuse, we all think of people, well, I don't know if we all, let's just, okay. Uh, but chronically, people who uh, use a lot of marijuana are associated with increased appetite or the munchies or weight increase, and people who discontinue that after chronic use can have the opposite effect. Um, chronic use of nicotine, opiates, alcohol, and some other medications also cause decreased appetite and weight loss. Heavy smokers tend to be thin. Some of this gets back to the work of breathing, um, like the COPD patients or the uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease patients. Um, they have a little bit increased um, usage of calories. Opiates directly interfere with the appetite center, inhibit it actually, and decrease gastric biliary and pancreatic secretions and decrease gastric motility. So a little bit of a malabsorption sort of syndrome as a result of the opiates as well. And in addition, the lifestyle and infections associated with opiate use um, obviously interfere with good nutrition and uh, nutritional status and lead to poor eating and weight loss as well. Alcohol, oftentimes that's also a lifestyle issue. The other thing is the calories are sort of empty, but there's a lot of them. So you'll see patients who, you know, drink 20 beers a day and they eat nothing all day. So that obviously can lose, lead to weight loss um, in general. And then amphetamines and cocaine, CNS stimulants, um, also have an adrenergic stimulatory effect on the satiety center. So you actually feel hungry or don't feel hungry even though you may um, 
really be hungry or have not taken enough calories. And that's in the hypothalamus. Any medications? Um, these are some of the more common culprits in terms of causing decreased appetite, nausea, dysgeusia, and altering. Um, this is more, I'm sorry, this list is more specific for just anorexia, but all medications can cause all those sort of problems. And you really need to think about every medication they're on, go through that list, look them up. A lot of times what happens is they've been on a medication for a while and it wasn't apparent um, originally that maybe that caused the problem. And so you kind of skip over because they've been on it a while, but a lot of times medications just slowly over time decrease the appetite. So you need to go through the whole medication list. Obviously anything that was new you need to think about. Um, right away or something that correlates pretty well with when the weight loss started, but anything can do it. Specifically in older adults, um, some issues that may come up more in them than in younger people. Um, this first one could be uh, younger people as well, but uh, poverty obviously can be a problem. People make choices about where to spend their money and it may not be on food, it may be on heat or medications. Um, older folks especially see this a lot in people who lose a spouse. Um, you know, they have to suddenly start eating alone or cooking for themselves, and that causes a huge problem. I see that a lot in the VA patients um, who lose a spouse. Psychiatric uh, issues I've already discussed, but may be more prevalent in the older folks, especially um, dementia. There are medical issues that are unique to older adults. They tend to have more dysgeusia and dysphagia, as well as chewing problems, which young people can have too if they've not taken well, good care of themselves, but we tend to see it more in this population. Um, flavor perception and food recognition issues in older adults tend to be related to chemosensory uh, losses and olfactory sensory losses, which obviously come into play with everything you eat and the taste of everything. Um, and then, kind of really interesting, older adults also tend to have a decreased food intake due to early satiety, and this is thought to be related to a decrease in the adaptive relaxation of the fundus of the stomach and uh, result in early antral filling, so they feel full quicker. Yes, sir? Uh -huh. Um, that is bad, just not good taste. I mean, you don't, you know, uh, what I want to say. Not bad taste, but uh, dysfunction of the taste. It so, so doesn't taste good. Okay. Um, this is just a quick mnemonic. Not much of a mnemonic in my, I mean, it's pretty long, but um, Robbins did a lot of studies in weight loss in older adults, and these are the nine things that you think of specifically in older adults, but it would do pretty well for a lot of people, actually, for a lot of patients who have um, unintentional weight loss. So evaluation. Any questions up to this point otherwise? Okay. So obviously a complete history is going to be very important here, maybe more important than some other things where you can focus in a little more clearly. Um, again, we're talking about unintentional weight loss. So they come in, or you've noticed, you know, they come in with a complaint of weight loss, but I don't know why. Or you've noticed weight loss that they have based on your records, and they don't, they're on, may not even be aware of it, or they don't know why. So again, clearly documented documenting that it has occurred is very important. I've already talked about that. And then also that it's truly unintentional. I mean, if you don't ask about it and get into the details, sometimes people haven't been trying to do some, one thing or another. Um, has the appetite, so the first thing is sort of think about the appetite. Has it increased or decreased? Obviously, um, there's very few things that cause the increased appetite, so that could really help you narrow that down or at least go down that pathway pretty quickly um, versus, the un versus decreased appetite, which is a, obviously a much larger differential. 
Weight over adult life is really important. Um, weight loss in a person whose weight has never really been stable because of diet and physical activity is obviously not as concerning as someone who's been rock stable for months and months and years and then all of a sudden is losing weight loss. Still, um, uh, you know, someone who's had trouble or tried to diet over time and has had a lot of trouble doing that who's suddenly successful, that may be another person you at least have to keep your eye on because either they may be using something that's dangerous or maybe they have unintentional weight loss for another reason and suddenly they're successful dieting. So that's just another group of people you might not think about normally. Um, try to pin down when the exact time the weight loss started was, um, as it may give some clues to the cause and the magnitude. Um, review systems and associated complaints obviously may give diagnostic clues. Uh, past medical history or past surgical history certainly gives some clues, especially into some of the GI problems. Uh, the dietary history becomes very important in this um, sort of thing because you're talking about a nutrition issue in many cases. It's difficult to do. Um, I know you've had some lectures on that already, at least from FCP1. Um, you can do a diet, um, you know, a food journal, which can be pretty difficult because then I think you're, you know, a lot of times they may not be accurate just because the patient's now thinking about it more, so they may be eating more, so they can put it down in the journal. You can do food recall in the office, which you know, from the day before may not be too bad or a day or two, but I can't remember what I ate three days ago all day. So um, there are ways to get, you know, ways to look at that, but you probably should at least get into a little more details than I would with my normal patient. As already pointed out, up to 25% are related to social stressors and psychiatric issues. So you want to identify these and get into these a little bit more than usual. You may also need to consult family or friends or caregivers for other clues along those lines, especially in older patients. A lot of times that can be helpful. Um, travel and sexually risky behavior can give you clues. And as I've already mentioned, many medications can cause problems, but you also need to think about other habits or herbal stuff or over-the-counter uh, medications, which they may be taking. And they, you know, I can't tell you the number of times. It seems sort of obvious, but the number of times if you don't ask specifically about herbal medicine, even like birth control pills, patients don't consider that a medication a lot of times. It's really, it's really wild what they will consider medications and not. So you really need to get very specific. Are you taking anything else over the, you know, from, the, from the pharmacy? Take anything else from the drugstore? Take anything else, you know, any vitamins or supplements? I mean, I've gotten very good about asking that because so many times they take stuff and it may be causing the weight loss that they have not clearly aware of or even know why they're taking it a lot of times. But they don't tell you if you just ask about medications. Physical, um, obviously you need to do a complete physical. So this will be one where you're not really having much of a focus unless they can give you something off that other stuff. You really need to do a very complete physical in this case. Um, uh, you may spend a little more time detail-wise on mood and effect um, in, in the sort of psychiatric uh, physical. Skin, lymphadenopathy will be important, and neuro and mental status, obviously, as I've already mentioned, come into play uh, more than usual. So the laboratory workup. Um, are you guys, how, do you guys know what these things are now by, by this time with CBL and stuff? So anything found on history and physical certainly will guide you. Um, and certainly if there's something on there, you can very clearly go down that pathway if you're guided by the history of physical. But a lot of times they just don't have a lot of, you know, a lot of ideas. They feel relatively okay. They have no specific complaint um, physically. And then sometimes you just have to sort of not shotgun it, but do a few things that are reasonable. And most authors um, would agree that this is a reasonable laboratory workup, not overly expensive. Um, well, it's probably expensive, but not overly expensive and not crazy to do these things because 
you'll get most of the problems, um, you'll get a lot of the problems based off these. So most of these are considered reasonable by most of us. And I think if you don't have any clear clues, start with this. Additional workup, um, HIV testing obviously in patients with risk factors. A chest x-ray is thought reasonable by most authors, although I couldn't really find clearly a reason why. It's interesting. Certainly in smokers you'd want to use it. Um, uh, so it's a pretty reasonable thing to do if the other stuff is all normal. Obviously, age-appropriate cancer screening makes sense, so flexig and colonoscopy if you're over 50, pap smears, mammograms, depending on the age, and PSA, which a lot of controversy surrounding PSAs, but I certainly get them uh, in men over 50 who have an unintentional weight loss. That is one time where I'll get them, no question. At this point, uh, the recommendation really now at this point is a period of watchful waiting. Martin and his associates, the same guy who's done a lot of stuff with unintentional weight loss, found that more than two-thirds of patients who do well during follow-up, all these studies so far probably stop it. Well, age-appropriate cancer screen is fine. Um, all the things I've mentioned so far that have been done, um, they do well if all those are normal. So in two-thirds of patients who do well in follow-up, the stuff I've told you so far to work it up are all normal. So that's reassuring. I mean, you're still missing 33%, but that's important. Um, and the other flip side of that is that none of the patients who did well in follow-up had all these be normal. So there was some abnormality in here in patients who did, who did poorly after, with follow-up after this. So I think up to this point is a pretty good normal workup. After this, you'd sort of watch and see and follow along and make some recommendations. You might want to get into a little more. What I tend to do now is get into a little bit more of the psychosocial issues and really hone in on the nutritional status. Um, you know, a lot of times you'll find, again, I'm dealing mostly nowadays with a, you know, a little bit older population of vets, which is a kind of unique population. And a lot of times people have weird stuff about eating. I mean, you really need to get into it and people will restrict themselves or they've been told by their doctor in the past that I shouldn't be eating after 9 o'clock. And stuff that we would normally say to keep their weight down where now uh, you want to actually, if you've sort of done a pretty decent investigation, you just want to try to keep the weight up. So you know, people can eat whatever they want and they love the doctor to tell them that. Um, you can also, you know, I tell them to eat, you know, ice cream. Uh, they can take supplements, which comes up a lot in terms of like Insure and Boost and those type of supplements that you get. The only problem with that is that you want to make sure they're taking them in between meals because I've had people who sort of use an instant breakfast in place of a meal and that kind of defeats the purpose. Actually, they tend to have more trouble then. So, making sure that they're taking the three meals. Um, a lot of times people say, well, I'm just not hungry, and then my response is, well, what if you eat anyway? I mean, so you have to just sort of work through that real practical, obvious stuff to you and me, but may not be so obvious to the patient, and they're not really even thinking about it. And again, don't forget 20%, we don't establish a cause. So other considerations, um, so you've done that workup, you're following along, are still not doing great. These are some other things you can consider. Again, GI problems being the most, um, make up a third of the non-malignant problems. Some authors advocate more investigation along these lines. I, I tend not to do them unless I have a focal reason to do it, although stool fat collection just for malabsorption is a pretty reasonable thing to do. It's pretty, I mean, it's not the most pleasant thing for the patient, uh, but it's um, pretty benign. So that is one thing that's probably reasonable. The other things I think... I tend to do, again, the colonoscopy if there's, you know, age-appropriate time, but uh, the other things more just if I have a um, 
specific reason to do them, although a lot of the authors would say this is a reasonable thing to do even if you don't. So I'll leave that to your medical acumen when you get there. Um, these things are not helpful. Uh, there's actually, so, you know, it seems like it would be a great idea then. So I have a lady who's 80 who doesn't really, I've done all those tests and they all seem normal. And now I'll just pan scan her with a CAT scan. But um, people do that all the time. But uh, there was one small study done on geriatric patients that showed there was no benefit to that. And generally, cost-wise, and they have nothing focal, we tend not to do I don't do it. I mean, we tend not to do it. So... It's basically been found not to be helpful, although, you know, you'll hear anecdotal stories, I'm sure, of people who did a colon, you know, a CAT scan on some lady who, you know, they found a tumor that they didn't know about. CEA, AFP, CA125 are all for specific cancers and really more specifically for um, monitoring the cancer once you've made the diagnosis. They're not good screening tests, so um, as you saw, some of the, a lot of specialists like to order them, at least on that study from Taiwan, but... Um, I never order any of these because they're not really helpful. And then again, just running more tests. Again, the specialists a lot of times tend to run more tests because it's to them now and they think we need to, you know, again, based on the Taiwan study, um, need to get, figure it out. But running more tests a lot of times, most of the time, is not helpful. Um, and that's pretty much it. So then this is just two summary slides um, that kind of just break it down quicker for you. Um, so we see this, I mean, in my own practice, I see this quite a bit. Um, again, as I already mentioned, it tends to be older guys. A lot of times it's very clear why, um, because and a lot of times I find it's probably a lot of it's psychiatric issues, slash depression, they lost their wife, that type of thing. They're in a new living situation. Rather than medical problems, I would say, you know, my personal uh, experiences, that tends to be a lot of that. Um, but the other workup has actually served me pretty well, and you pick up a lot of small things with that and able to sort of figure them out based off the stuff that I've already told you. So you're done way early. Any questions? All right, thanks.